Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. with your jumpers on. Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, welcome to Countrywide. My name's Megan Hughes. Thanks for joining me. Today, three years after being eradicated from Australia, banana freckle disease is back with a new detection in the Northern Territory. Is a lot of surveillance. We're talking to growers and to members of the community to try and find out whether they've got any symptoms or anything suspect on their property. You'll soon meet Australia's new Agriculture Minister. Well, I'd like to think that I'm a pretty open and approachable person and certainly I've built up really strong relationships with stakeholders and industry and unions, rural communities in previous roles and portfolios that I've had. And five refugee families from Myanmar have started a farming enterprise together, but it's not been without its challenges. Yeah, when we start this farm, the rain is too much and yeah, before we plant zucchini and... They nearly die and yeah, ring again and die. Every time, everything is die. But first today, Indonesia is currently dealing with an outbreak of foot and mouth disease that has infected more than 20,000 head of livestock and spread to 17 provinces. Australia's chief vet has just returned from the country. Dr Mark Ship gives Matt Bran an update on the situation. I've uh, just returned from Indonesia. I was there on Monday and Tuesday this week and uh, the situation is quite serious. The uh, disease has spread from the initial two provinces identified and reported through to 17 uh, provinces across most of uh, Western Indonesia. Uh, so that that's of uh, great concern both to uh, Indonesians and, and livestock producers there, but also to Australia and uh, the biosecurity threat that that uh, represents for Australia. Any official numbers in terms of animals infected? Uh, the, the numbers are a bit difficult in that uh, they're only reporting laboratory-confirmed uh, animals and they're only reporting cattle. Uh, so uh, the numbers that they, they give are, are lower than uh, the, the true situation in terms of uh, animals that are clinically affected and animals that are, are not cattle. Obviously, much of the focus is on cattle, but Indonesia has significant numbers of pigs and uh, sheep and goats as well as buffalo. Those numbers are not being captured as yet. You've no doubt seen all of the commentary around barley and whether Australians should be flying there or not. But right now, is FMD even in that part of Indonesia? Uh, that's right. The uh, the eastern uh, end of Indonesia, so Bali, Papua, Timor, uh, those islands are still free of foot and mouth free. disease and mm-hmm. And the, the intent of Indonesia is to try and preserve that freedom and, and uh, work to that end. In, in any case, uh, Australia and uh, the quarantine and, and biosecurity services have uh, increased uh, surveillance and uh, intervention measures at the border for uh, people returning from Bali and from Indonesia generally. So what is Indonesia doing at the moment to limit and potentially eradicate foot and mouth disease and where does Australia fit in all of that? So uh, Indonesia is in the 
process of purchasing vaccine and Australia is assisting with that. Uh, so we've provided funds and uh, we have made uh, contact with vaccine suppliers uh, to uh, purchase uh, the, uh, the vaccine that needs to be matched to the outbreak strain. Uh, we have also been providing technical advice. Um, it's quite challenging in Indonesia, as you'd appreciate, with a, a lot of uh, livestock movements, particularly in the lead up to the Eid uh, festival, uh, which is imminent. Uh, so it's very difficult to have movement restrictions in place. So we, we've been providing advice on uh, a, a technical basis, uh, providing uh, finances and, and vaccine support. And Indonesia has also suggested that they would manufacture their own uh, vaccine, uh, revitalising a, a vaccine factory that they had uh, back in the 80s. And so we're, we're giving them uh, advice on that aspect also. Lumpy skin disease, of course, that was the initial outbreak. What's the focus and attention on it right now? So the, the focus uh, still remains around uh, Sumatra and uh, vaccinating around uh, infected uh, premises. The vaccine has been uh, used uh, in uh, around those uh, infected uh, properties, uh, but the rollout has been quite slow and, and uh, we've been disappointed in, in that regard that uh, it hasn't been more efficient and, and more effective and more widespread particularly given that it's a, a, a vector, an insect-borne uh, disease. That's Australia's Chief Vet, Dr Mark Ship, talking to Matt Bran. A debate has ignited over the best way to prevent the spread of foot and mouth disease from Indonesia to Australia. If it arrived here, it could shut Australian exports of meat down overnight and it could cost the Australian economy at least $16 billion in the first year alone. A leading livestock analyst is calling for a three-month ban on flights to our northern neighbour. Simon Quilty from Global Agri-Trends tells Warwick Long the so-called barley ban would lower the risk to Australian producers. It just feels like common sense that we've got the deadliest disease possible for Australian livestock industry, which is worth billions, as we know, and a need to just slow down the system because the big deal is that vaccines, whether it's foot and mouth disease or lumpy skin disease, are very tight globally. And we know that the Indonesian government is trying to import them and bring them in as quickly as possible, but they're simply not available globally. Do you worry that by calling for this or if it actually happened, a moratorium on flights to Indonesia, that it would cause a cultural or an international incident between the two nations? Well, no, because, and, and I think that's obviously the first thing that everyone jumps to is, you know, when, when the ban on cattle happened and, and how things happened between Australia and Indonesia at the time, back in 2011. Warwick, you would go into this in complete consultation with the Indonesian government. You wouldn't put this ban or moratorium in place without their consent. That was Simon Quilty from Global Agritrans calling for the so-called barley ban. But not everyone in the industry agrees with him. Leading agricultural analyst Andrew Whitelaw from Thomas Elder Markets, who has trained in Nepal in the treatment of FMD, says it actually would be overkill. At a national level, we've got to maintain that stringent bar security. We need to, first of all, try and keep it out. A ban on traffic would do that. Clearly a ban would. But borders are still porous anyway. It wouldn't really... It, what it would also do at the same time is it would also damage 
a, a very strong trading relationship we have with Indonesia. Uh, it would also damage, you know, thousands of people who haven't been on holiday for the last two years. It would give them a, a sour taste in their mouth uh, when they have to cancel their holidays. So I think it's, it is an option. It would be an option um, for me once we see it, it's, it's at a stage where this is rampant and we cannot control it and there's no way to control it. At this point, we're not yet at that level. So I think it's it's an interesting proposition, but I think we've got far more tools. I'd rather use a scalpel than a sledgehammer, and I think that's what we need to do at the moment. That's Andrew Whitelaw from Thomas Elder Market speaking there to Warwick Long. Now, the ABC understands Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and the Foreign Minister Penny Wong are heading to Indonesia this weekend to meet with the government to discuss where to from here. Another biosecurity issue has arisen, but this time in the horticulture industry. The plant disease known as banana freckle has been found in the Northern Territory again three years after it was officially eradicated from Australia. It significantly reduces banana quality and yields and is seen as a major threat to Australia's $500 million banana sector. To learn more about the outbreak south of Darwin, Matt Brand spoke to the NT's Chief Plant Health Officer, Dr Anne Walters. So at the moment, um, what the department is doing is a lot of surveillance across the top end region to understand the extent of the infestation. It may well be limited to one or several properties in that area, or it may be more widespread than that. So at the moment, what we're doing is a lot of surveillance. We're talking to growers and to members of the community and to try and find out whether they've got any symptoms or anything suspect on their property, asking people to call in if they've got any concerns. I guess... It'll be in a lot of people's minds. Last time banana freckle was around, it led to a large eradication program and a lot of people lost their banana plants. Is that a possibility once again? I guess I really can't comment at this stage. Um, Obviously, we will do everything we can to minimise the size of the program based on the risk and the likelihood that it spreads and also where it is at the moment. Um, We'll be working very closely with industry and and the community to take the, the best possible approach to managing this particular risk. Are you able to tell us more about the infection, exactly where it is and, you know, are those people farmers? What do they do? There, um, it's a, it's on a residential property. Um, it's, it's just a, you know, residential property in the bachelor area. Um, the person was obviously really diligent. They recognised some symptoms on the plant that looked a little bit unusual, and they did the right thing, which is fantastic from a biosecurity perspective and for protecting our industry and the national industry. And they brought in the samples for us to have a look at, and obviously we were concerned when we saw it. The infected site, have those banana plants already been removed? No, not yet. As you know, we only had confirmation yesterday. yesterday. So at the moment, we're collecting uh, as much information as we can. Obviously, a huge component of all eradication programs is about tracing. So it's about finding out where the plants came from, where any material from the property or fruit has been moved to, so that we can actually follow up and get the best possible information about where um, other infection may have occurred or be. That's the NT's Chief Plant Health Officer, Dr. Ann Walters. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio.
Australian farming has never been more valuable, but that doesn't mean it's without its challenges. As you heard earlier, biosecurity remains a pressing issue. Queensland Senator Murray Watt was sworn in as the Federal Minister for Agriculture, Fisheries, Forestry and Emergency Management this week. Shortly afterwards, our reporter Kath Sullivan caught up with Murray Watt for one of his first interviews in the job. I'm really honoured to take on the appointment and incredibly excited about the opportunities to work with uh, our farming sector and rural communities. Tell me, what do you see as the priorities for the sector? Well, certainly in the discussions I've had with the sector, even before taking on this role, I'm very conscious that workforce shortages are probably the number one issue the sector is facing at the moment. Obviously, Labor went to the election uh, with a policy around strengthening the Pacific Labor Scheme as a way of dealing with that. But there's certainly a lot to be done on that front. Uh, And I'm also acutely aware of some of the major biosecurity risks um, that we face even just to our near north. Uh, So I'm looking forward really to working as quickly as possible with both departmental representatives and stakeholders to get on top of uh, those issues and the many others that face the sector and and get stuck in. Just on some of those biosecurity risks to the north, I note the Prime Minister is headed to Indonesia on the weekend. Any chance you might join him and uh, put the cause for Australia to help out with the foot and mouth disease outbreak there? Not at this stage. Um, I'm not intending to, but I know that that's an issue that I'm sure will be raised uh, in the meetings that the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister are having Uh, with the Indonesian government. I absolutely understand the significance of these issues and uh, I expect that if there's any opportunity to get to Indonesia myself, I'll I'll certainly do that. When will you phase out live sheep exports? Well, as you're probably aware, the policy that we took to the election didn't set a timeframe for phasing out live sheep exports uh, and that is something that we intend to work closely with industry uh, and government partners on. Um, the industry has been in decline for some time now uh, and we think that phasing the industry out is the right thing to do. Um, but we're also conscious that it's not something that you can just click your fingers and happen overnight. So that'll be one of many issues that I look forward to speaking with uh, industry about uh, in close partnership. Looking forward to? <laughs> it sounds well, like look- some tough conversations. Well, no, I mean, I'm I'm the sort of person who's always happy to sit around the table and talk to people or get out on the ground and and meet face to face. So, um, you know, I'll I'll be certainly approaching those conversations uh, from a position of goodwill and I'm sure the industry will be as well. Uh, As part of the ministry sworn in this morning, there is no assistant minister for agriculture. We saw in the last parliament the Tasmanian Senator Jonathan Dunham served there, um, a minister for fisheries and forestry. Why has that position not uh, appeared this time around? Uh, Well, I suppose the ministerial arrangements differ with every government um, and assistant ministers have been appointed to a range of other portfolios by the new Prime Minister. Um, There will be a number of assistant ministers, though, that have uh, portfolios that are closely related to agriculture. Even uh, the Manufacturing and Trade Assistant Minister, Senator Tim Ayres, um, you know, when you think about it, agriculture is something that often ends up being manufactured and it's a core part of our trade program. So I'd expect to continue working closely with a number of assistant ministers, uh, particularly uh, because one of the other priorities I really want to take uh, forward in this portfolio is continuing to move Australian agriculture up the value chain. You know, it's fantastic that we grow the wheat in the in Australia, but we also should be making the flour, making the biscuits, making the chocolate chips that go in them and extracting the full value from our, our product. And so food processing, I really want to make a priority as well. 
Murray, what we appreciate you speaking to the ABC um, just a handful of hours since you were sworn in to, into Cabinet, no less, as Australia's Agriculture Minister. A few people listening will be wondering who you are. They may not be from your home state of Queensland, where you've served in the in the state parliament as well. Um, what do you think is important that people know about you? Well, I'd like to think that I'm a pretty open and approachable person, uh, Cass, and certainly I've built up really strong relationships with stakeholders and industry and unions, rural communities in previous roles and portfolios that I've had, uh, even as the Shadow Minister for uh, Northern Australia. Um, I had a lot of dealings with the agriculture sector and probably most importantly, I've got farming in my blood. Uh, while I haven't been a farmer myself, uh, my father actually grew up on a dairy farm outside Mackay. <laughs> Uh, he was a cane cutter in his younger days, uh, bred cattle as well. And on my mother's side, there was a lot of dairying on the Darling Downs. So I've certainly inherited a real interest in agriculture uh, and a real passion for trying to help the sector grow, uh, as well as really making sure that our regional communities around the country get a fair deal from their federal government. So really looking forward to working with everyone. That's Australia's new Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, talking there to Kath Sullivan. Countrywide. The voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. You're listening to Countrywide. My name's Megan Hughes. Coming up, why people in the bush might have a more positive outlook than those in cities. But first, I'm going to take you to the New South Wales Coffs Coast now, where five refugee families from Myanmar have come together to start a farming enterprise. They've spent months battling wet weather conditions and floods to establish their organic vegetable farm. But despite the challenges, this group is determined to succeed. Keely Johnson has this story. Coffs Harbour on the New South Wales mid-north coast is booming. Population is on the way up and it's not just tree changes coming to this part of the world. It's in a refugee welcome zone and more than a 1,000 people, mostly from war-torn countries, have settled here in the past 17 years. Among them are five families from Myanmar with a dream to start their own farming enterprise in their new country. Just over a year ago, they took their plan to Rebecca Mordant at Settlement Services International, who specialises in small business startups. The farmers all came to us. It originally came from a community consultation in 2019 that was held um, with members of the Myanmar community in Coffs Harbour. And they really highlighted three things. They really wanted to work together. They really wanted to farm and practice their cultural traditional skills. And um, they really wanted to be self-sufficient and you know, create something for their future generations here in Coffs. Their first step was to work out how they wanted to operate their farm business. They decided to become a registered cooperative and the Myanmar Community Agriculture Cooperative was born. It was really important um, that they had a really good structure to work under. They went with the idea of a cooperative because they wanted to support the community larger than just themselves. But to farm, they need land. And that's where Joshua Allen came in. His 13-hectare property near Nanaglen, just north of Coffs Harbour, had once been an organic vegetable farm. Yeah, it was probably 12 months ago that we were out there sort of wondering what's going to happen with the farm that had been dormant for a couple of years. And so we were approached by uh, Ignite and Settlement Services International, who said we've got a community that is looking for a farm. It was kind of a match made in heaven. Two and a half hectares were assigned to the cooperative, with each of the five families taking a half hectare block and leaving some land for livestock. 
Ting Sai Munring is an unofficial leader in the cooperative. He and his wife Ziling have transformed their block into a lush vegetable garden with tomatoes, lettuce, okra, rosella leaf and more. Similar to what they grew in their hometown in western Myanmar, minus one very big crop. Rice farm, mostly yeah, we grow rice and yeah, rosella, yeah, different, different also, yeah. Mm. Mostly it's yeah, rice. Ting Sai has found farming in Australia very different. Soil is yeah, very good in Burma. Yeah, yeah, also very good, but we need to use yeah, mm-hmm. fertilizer. It's been challenging, not just adjusting to Australian soil and pests, but understanding how a business works and managing rent and costs. Yes, uh, very hard for me because yeah, uh, I don't understand, not uh, really understand yeah, English and then uh, speaking also. Then we don't have, yeah, I don't have, yeah, uh, no, uh, not uh, experience in here. Bam is, is here already, I have experience, but not here. So learning different, different, many things, many for the seed also. Uh, how can I buy, I get, and yeah, everything, yeah, I, I learning. Very difficult for me. And the constant wet weather in recent months from the La Nina event on the East Coast has brought record rainfall. It's meant Van Sutil and her husband Som are planting snow peas and lettuce ahead of winter after losing most of their summer crops in the wet conditions. Yeah, when we start this farm, the rain is too much and yeah, before we plant zucchini and oh, they nearly die and yeah, rain again and die, every time. everything is dry. Van works on the farm when she can, balancing it with raising her young kids. I have three kids and uh, uh, two is in school and one is childcare. So when after I drop them, I come straight. So I could not come very early, only my husband. <laughs> the cooperative farm is completely organic, which means weeding is all done by hand. We can borrow from shop the machine, but... Um, a bit expensive, so we do ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, I do weigh and The cooperative sells some of their veggies at the local Sunday markets, but have big plans to turn their shed into a shop in the coming months. Well, I know that they're really keen to um, open up a bit of a shop front here at the farm and invite the public in. Um, they really want to start taking their produce to market, so they'll probably pop up in Bellingen and um, some of the other local markets in this area. Um, and continue to um, pull crops for the community and support their own families and, and general community. That's Settlement Services International's Rebecca Mordent ending that report from Keely Johnson. The saying goes that the grass isn't always greener on the other side, but some new research shows country people have a far more positive outlook than those in the cities and suburbs. Regional and rural residents are the happiest people in Australia, according to NAB's Regional and Agribusiness Horizons report. Eliza Burlage has this story. From wide open spaces to little to no traffic jams, strong community and lower cost of living pressures. These are just some of the reasons why people love living in the country. 
Then along came the COVID-19 pandemic, which left many in regional Australia feeling fortunate for the freedom they had compared to their city cousins. This also inspired a wave of tree changes. Diana Williams made the sea change from Adelaide to Port Lincoln more than 16 years ago for work. She's now living in the small Riverina town of Witten in New South Wales and says she hasn't looked back. I was working at the Adelaide Football Club and I had an opportunity to move to Air Peninsula, South Australia, to Port Lincoln. Um, it was a wonderful opportunity for a, um, a bit of a sea change and I was there for, for almost 12 years actually in the end. So it was an opportunity that presented itself and I thought, why not? Give it a go. So, yeah, it was meant to be, what, just a, a short stint and uh, you sort of fell in love with the place. I know sometimes people stay because they fall in love with the person, but... <laughs> yeah, Port Lincoln certainly was, like, I definitely did enjoy living by the ocean. Um, but then this opportunity here in New South Wales actually was meant to be six weeks and 16 months later I'm, I'm still here. Uh, look, a lot of that had to do with COVID lockdown and the borders been closed, but I've, as I said, I've tried to turn lemons into lemonade and took the most, made the most of the opportunity to still be here and, and have a job and I've loved it. Living regionally, uh, certainly very good for lifestyle and work-life balance. I've heard some people refer to Adelaide as a big country town, but you've lived in some actual country towns. Anyone who says that, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to sound rude, but anyone who says that has actually probably never lived in a very small town because it's been very isolating. Um, you've got to learn to manage your time and, and your, your shopping and all of those things. You just don't have the access to a lot of, of services that you do have in the big cities. But for all of the things that you don't have, there's lots of things that you do. So as I said in the NAB article, to be able to go and have a knock-off drink down by the Murrumbidgee River within five minutes of where I am is a pretty special way to end a, um, a long day at work. What were some of the things that surprised you about living in the country uh, that you really enjoyed? It's a very different sense of community here and particularly probably in, in both regional cities that I've been fortunate to live in. I've always said that it's, it's high risk, high reward with some of the, um, the industries, particularly Port Lincoln with agriculture and fishing and aquaculture. And then here in the Riverina, it's, you know, everything's the absolute food bowl, everything from, you know, growing cotton and rice and crops through the grapes and fruit and all sorts. So I think it's high risk, high reward and I've just absolutely loved being surrounded by people who dynamic in their thinking and prepared to roll up their sleeves and get into it. And I'm I'm not suggesting that doesn't happen in the cities, but I think it's even more you pull your boots on and you get on and do it. And I've really loved being involved with with people like that here from a business perspective. I just encourage anyone if you're thinking of doing something just a little different you don't need to do it for a long time like I have just to be able to at least get your boots in the mud and see what it's like and just try something out of the um, out of the big city and as the NAB report said, you know, perhaps we are a little happier when we have some time in the country. NAB's executive for regional and agribusiness, Julie Rinsky, says the findings show both long-term residents and new arrivals thrive in the bush. We've been tracking these factors annually for more than a decade with Australians right across the country. And, uh, and it was fantastic to see the highest score in regional Australia since 2018. And in rural areas, one in three Aussies actually say they are extremely happy. Not just happy, but extremely happy. How was this uh, research collated? We look at a number of factors. It's not as simple as saying we ask a question of are you happy. We look at all of the factors like um, mental health, well-being, relationships, communities, what's important, job security, all of those components. And we take all of those factors into consideration uh, under the happiness index. 
And therefore, you know, that's what it gives us, is that sort of balanced feedback around what makes people happy. And as you know, all of those things do. And uh, yes, that's both people, I guess, who have maybe grown up there and have remained uh, in country areas. But also um, we're talking a lot today about uh, migration to Australia. But in the last few years during the pandemic, there's been a lot more internal, uh, intrastate and interstate migration. People, you know, the tree changes and the sea changes. Are you seeing much um, joy from their moves too? I think they're probably driving it, Eliza, to be honest. We know regional people are happy anyway. That's their disposition. But I think people who've actually made the change are really enjoying it. And and the feedback we get or the research shows us is that what attracted them was closer to nature, bigger open spaces. People really didn't want to have that inner city living where it was a bit cramped and crowded. And then the other one, which was a really big call out, was the sense of feeling part of a community. And, you know, being a regional girl myself, I just know community is incredibly important. And it's just how communities rally together. And certainly regional Australia uh, plays out very strongly in that space. That's NAB's Executive for Regional and Agribusiness, Julie Rinsky, ending that report from Eliza Berlage. And that's it for Countrywide today. You can hear all of these stories and more at abc.net.au slash rural. I'm Megan Hughes. Goodbye for now.